Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish tech news. The European Central Bank just published um, a report on the payment attitudes of consumers in Europe. It's a report that they put out every three years, so it kind of covers the period 2019 to date. They have served, they surveyed over 40,000 respondents in 17 European countries, and that the survey was done uh, towards the end of 2021 um, up to the mid-2022. Some highlights from this. Uh, in Europe, in general, cash remains um, the payment method of um, choice at the point of sale. However, it is declining. Numbers in the report, in the survey, it's 59%. Uh, and now, and uh, it was 72% in 2019. At the same time, the, the usage of cards at the point of sale is up. It's uh, 34% at the point of sale, which is up from 25% in 2019. P in peer-to-peer -peer payments, cash is the dominant uh, means of payment, 73%, but it's down from 86% in 2019. The, the survey shows a huge heterogeneity. heterogeneity. Uh, there is nothing homogeneous across Europe in terms of preferences, What's more interesting to me is not only to look at the number of transactions and what they tell us in terms of the payments, but also the volume of transactions. For the first time, card payments have surpassed cash payments. So volume crosses through card payments 46% in Europe and cash payments 42%. In terms of sentiment, across Europe, over 50% of, of participants in the survey really want uh, cash as a payment option. So this is a very strong sentiment in, in Europe. Germans like cards now more than cash. And last but not least, a bit uh, about crypto. Surprisingly low percentage uh, own crypto, according to the survey, around 4% across Europe. And the, the countries with the highest holdings are Slovenia and, and Luxembourg. This kind of conflicts with the 10% that Lagarde has been uh, claiming that is held in cryptocurrencies. With this in mind, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jonas Gross who is the chairman of the Digital Euro Association, but not only. He's a member 
of the panel of experts at the European Blockchain Observatory and Forum. He's been an external lecturer at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management that has a special focus on uh, blockchain. And not only, we'll have an opportunity to discuss um, topics that are of um, interest to him as he holds a PhD in economics and has been focused on uh, CBDCs, uh, stable coins, uh, and, and cryptocurrencies and monetary policy. Dr. Jonas, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for taking the time to be uh, with us. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, you know, this is, this is a topic that definitely uh, will be on everybody's radar in 2023, whether it's around CBDCs, private um, uh, stable coins, uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, cash, and, and all that for many good and bad, unfortunately, uh, reasons. So, so I'm delighted to have you here and, and pick your mind um, as you have all these expertise and passion, which, which goes uh, together. So shall we start with what is going on with the digital euro as you are really deep into that? What are the main characteristics of the proposed, I guess, digital euro to date? Of course, so I guess that's a really good start. So the ECB is currently looking into um, issuing a digital euro. So it's it really has to be said that until today, there has no decision been taken if indeed a digital euro will come. Um, so this is they are currently in the so-called investigation phase, which lasts until um, this year, October. Um, and then it will be decided if the ECB will basically proceed into the developing phase, right? So um, this is just really important to understand because often people think, well, it all has already been set in stone that a digital euro will come, but that's not the case. And conditional on such issuance, of course, we also don't know a final design yet. So everything I'm saying, you know, is also my personal interpretation from the papers, the, the articles, the conversations we were having. So I think that's also important to mention. But what we can see quite clearly is the direction where we are going with the digital euro, right? So we do see some of the key pillars that if a digital euro will be issued, that will be represented and that, that will be kind of key around the digital euro. The first thing is that definitely commercial banks will be included. So this means it will be a two-tiered system. So the ECB, for example, will not open up accounts with every citizen, but instead it will be commercial banks that support with setting up the wallets, doing operational tasks like money laundering checks, for example. Um, th similar as with cash today, right? So also with cash today, the ECB doesn't does not provide this to every citizen by itself, but via ATMs, which are often located close to banks as well. Um, and this is kind of a, a feature or a setup that will also be included when it comes to the digital euro. So that's like, I think the first, first um, observation about the design. The second one is about um, privacy, because that's of course a very, very important topic. And I think we will also talk about this in more detail later on, and because it is such, so important. And the ECB has also taken a first decision in terms of privacy, namely that it will be similar 
in terms of privacy of um, or will be similar to digital payments we know today. So what I mean by that is that the degree of privacy will be similar to, for example, a bank transfer or a mobile payment today. So this means that, for example, when you want to pay, you need to provide the payment amount, the recipient, you know, so it's, it's kind of very similar to how a bank transaction works today. Um, and I think this is something we can also, we could also discuss um, a little bit more in detail because this is something where I'm, you know, not fully convinced if this is like the right, uh, right choice and the right direction to go around the digital euro. So, so the privacy is, is really at that level, not at the level of physical cash and, and how to, to, to go about that, right? Exactly. And what we have basically also done, and this was part, part on my PhD thesis actually one and a half years ago, we released um, kind of a concept how you could actually bring cash-like privacy also to the digital world. So this means how you can allow anonymous payments, at least for, you know, small amounts, right? Yeah. But also align this with the need for anti-money laundering checks. Um, so basically to comply with regulations, because it has very often been said that this is not feasible to do. So you cannot have both. Um, but the thing is, technologically, you can. So in the end, it's a policy decision if you want this high degree of privacy similar to cash. Or if you say, well, no, let's rather stick to the privacy we have around, you know, commercial bank money payments or credit card payments today. Yeah, yeah. So, so clearly, the ECB is talking, uh, is thinking along the lines of a retail CBDC, not wholesale CBDC, right? And and um, the privacy that you're mentioning is it. How similar or different is it to what we know exists now uh, in, in China with the digital Juan, which is, I guess, the largest one, or one of the Caribbean ones that are sort of further uh, in terms of, of piloting, I would say, not adoption that much? So the ECB and its current project refers to like this privacy scenario I just mentioned as like the baseline scenario. So this is kind of, you know, the, the assumptions they are, the assumption they are currently um, using around privacy. So this means also here it's not set in stone, but it's very likely that this privacy model um, will be followed if, again, the ECB decides to proceed with a digital euro. And here it's important to understand that this is actually less private than the CBDC projects you just mentioned. So if we compare this with China or also the Eastern Caribbean region, or if I'm not mistaken, even Nigeria, mm -hmm. they have basically the following approach. You can, um, you have two different, you know, let's say um, payment possibilities or put differently, you have one threshold. If you have payments below this threshold, you are more private right so higher privacy and if you exceed this threshold you have lower privacy basically you know to comply with with regulation which i think to be honest is a really really smart approach to to basically have both like the privacy needs of citizens on the one hand side but also the need for anti-money laundering check on the other hand side in china nigeria the eastern caribbean it's basically the case that for payments below specific limits, of course, they vary. And you know, it's account yeah. limits, payment limits, I think it would be too much to talk about, yeah. uh, about this, um, in this, uh, in this video today. Um, but what we do see is that these payments below the thresholds are not linked to personal information. So you don't need an ID, for example, to onboard or bank account, but you need a mobile phone number. 
So this means if you have a mobile phone number, you can use this, but you need this mobile phone number. And this is really, really important to understand because the privacy model I personally in mind have in, have in mind and envision and we have with cash today is really that if you pay below a specific threshold, there is really no way to trace it back to you. But as we know, with a mobile phone number in most countries, I'm thinking about Germany here, you have to provide your, your, um, your ID when you buy a SIM card, right? So this means it's kind of pseudonymous, but really not anonymous and not having the same degree of privacy as, as cash today. And, and, and not only your ID to, to get a SIM card, you probably need to, to provide your address and residency, at least in most countries. Exactly, exactly. So as you mentioned, it, it varies from country to country, um, but this is also what I have like in, in mind. And I think it was similar when I bought my last um, SIM card here in Germany. And this is, I think, a, a really important point because, for example, the Chinese Central Bank also says in its app, like which comes from the Central Bank, that this is like anonymous payments. But it's really not. This is like this difference between being anonymous and pseudonymous, as we know with Bitcoin, for example, right? Um, so long story short, we see that Privacy seems to be higher than the baseline scenario the ECB has in mind, but I personally would go for, and this is also what we showed in our paper um, one and a half years ago, would go for a concept where you don't link this to your phone number, so this, the low value transactions, but really have full anonymity, so really no link to any information of you. And this, the, the cool thing is that this is basically technologically feasible via different forms. One is, for example, zero knowledge proofs that we have based our concept on. Um, yeah, but this is in the end, you know, a political question. And this is also one aspect we at the Digital Euro Association want to address and mention the importance of privacy, because we think this is like a fundamental civil right, which also should, you know, be guaranteed ensured in the digital world where cash might in the very, very, very long run play um, a not so prominent role as of today. I believe, Jonas, that in China, they have um, sort of uh, uh, thought about what to do for people that don't have a, um, a smartphone or, or a phone, a mobile phone, and they have some type of card that, that is, uh, you know, pseudo cash digital that I, I assume you can upload at certain, you know, locations and so on. So, so there is that thought there too, because obviously there are people that are not digitally connected or you know the digital divide of the older generation plus we can also have these blackouts right internet deserts and which which are coming becoming more common and frequent maybe not that long lasting but i think they're becoming more frequent so so we really have to do another question to throw in the mix you know we have the cbdc's the discussion and and the design of those we have the money the fiat money as we know it today we have cryptocurrencies and a lot of people claiming that cryptocurrencies will never make it as a means of payments but also i i, I see you've been talking about commercial bank money tokens what are those in the, in the possible mix of the evolution of digital money. Yeah, so I truly believe that in the future, also the future of money will consist of different forms of money. So I, I don't think that, for example, if we have CBDCs that 
this you know will be like the only form of money that will survive on the very long run i don't think so i think it's like a private public partnership we will diff have different forms of money as we have today right and um what is also really important to understand is that we know there are lots of ways to digitize fiat currencies let's say right so one is cbdc's we talked about um, another one is like stable coins we know right yeah, so basically having ones. a Exactly, private sector ones, so stable coins that are issued by private sector companies. In the EU, EU, interestingly, we will soon have the Mika regulation, which will classify most of the stable coins as e-money. Um, so you need to have a license for that. And the second, you know, alternative to, or like a third actually, a third alternative to bring the euro on a chain, let's say, would be tokenized commercial bank money. So the difference is basically that it's not an e-money institute or an unregulated institute issues this, let's call it stablecoin, um, but a commercial bank money does. Um, so that's like a question of the issuer who's behind it also has like, of course, different risk behind it. And what's very interesting, of course, from a bank business model perspective is if you um, issue commercial bank money, you can basically do this in a similar form as you issue money today. So this means you can have like um, basically money creation, which is like a, a business model for banks, as we know. And this cannot be the case with normal, let's say, stable coins, because they are like 100% fully backed. Um, and we do, do observe very high momentum in the discussions around commercial bank money tokens. We have, for example, also seen like Citibank with the regulated liability network where they um, are talking about creating a payment infrastructure where we can basically have liabilities from different institutions so where we could have like commercial bank money tokens, CBDCs, and e-money tokens slash stable coins. Um, but this is also something I think where we are quite early because lots of, um, you know, points about interoperability, fungibility, the risk and the issuance really have to be figured out and are from my perspective not 100% solved yet. Interesting. Is this at all related to the JP Morgan coin that has been designed for their corporate clients and, and used internally? Although, honestly, I haven't read a lot since they, they've issued it about how much they've actually used it and, and, and how successful, if you want, for them and their clients it's been. I would say it's a kind of related. So where it is related is kind of this B2B wholesale context. So CBDCs are for retail users because we talked about retail CBDCs, but these uh, tokens, um, at least in my mind, more address business use cases, right? So think about uh, people that want to, or companies that want to leverage the potential of, um, let's say, like DLT-based forms of money, like nano payments, streaming payment applications, for example, for them. And these tokens could be relevant. So I think in terms of who's the target audience, it is similar. But where it's different is like the precise use case. Because for, uh, for the JPN Morgan coin, at least like when I last read about it um, a few years ago, it was mainly about, you know, internal settlement processes yep. where a commercial bank money token could in theory also be used. But I think it's like a broader range of use cases which can be used there. Namely, as I mentioned, industry use cases, you know, IoT, machine to machine, at least on the very long run. Yeah, yeah. You brought up a, a very interesting and important to uh, topic, machine-to-machine -machine payments. As you said, we will probably live in a world with a mix of all these different forms of payments. Machine-to-machine -machine payments, we, we haven't 
talked enough about what is going on there and what is possible and how banks should prepare themselves for that machine to machine economy because i mean just thinking of it i'm not sure that what we have today or cbdc's or the private stable coins that are out there are sort of ready for that kind of world what, what are your thoughts on on this topic really good questions and i'm a real big believer in these you know machine to machine payments machine economy iot and actually i think i've been writing some um, some papers about this also like two or three years ago where we were really even even earlier than today but where I really would agree with you is that i think not everything is solved yet in this regard so i mean about payment authorization, for example, like does the machine have an own ID, you know, does a person need to say like as a two factor authentication in Europe, yes, the machine is allowed, allowed to pay. I think here's some adjustments for sure need to be made. And also in terms of, of technology, I mean, we do see great progress around, you know, the transaction costs are getting lower and lower. So we've seen this for Bitcoin, also for, um, for Ether, for example. But we also do see that for the, the most um, cryptocurrencies, we do see that transaction costs are relatively high, right? So for, for a lot of them in the cent or even the euro or dollar amount, which is way too much if we talk about sub-cent payments, right? So I think this is from a technological perspective where we do see more layer ones coming up, which I think still need to prove if they will survive in contrast to Bitcoin and Ethereum, who are just there for um, uh, a longer time um, in this regard. Uh, but I think that we do see great progress. And one progress, for example, is also um, around the Bitcoin Lightning Network, which is basically a network where we can use the Bitcoin blockchain for you know, scalable, immediate settled payments. And to date, there exists already use cases. And uh, I'm trying this with my personal podcast that you do, for example, um, streaming, streaming payments value for value. So the idea is for every minute, one person listens to my podcast, this is linked to a Bitcoin Lightning wallet, and he or she sends me nano payments really in the sub area. So it's really, I don't know, thousands of a cent, for example, just basically to tell me, so to signal me, I like the content, what you're doing and, you know, this value for value narrative. So you give me value, namely the content. I give you some value in terms of some Satoshis or some fractions of Bitcoin. So this is a use case that exists today, but we are very, we are very early. So it's, we know that all those things take a lot of time. And I think this is one of my key lessons from the last two to three years that it always in payments takes longer than expected, at least when it comes to, you know, like mass use cases and not just building out a nice wallet, but really also integrate in existing payment systems, get the reg regulatory front right. Um, yeah, so I think we are, we, are, we are here, we are going into the right direction, but it still takes, um, takes some more years until this really, you know, let's say kicks off on a large scale. The, the, the case that you have embedded in your podcast is really interesting because it's, it's just a, a, a micro case of what we envision could happen in social media platforms or whether it's Twitter or, or others where uh, content uh, pro creators would get rewarded um, for, for you know, the content through micro payments uh, like that, that really cost little and, and also offer this immediate interactivity that we don't have at this uh, point. 
yeah. Do do you think that we are closer to that than seeing really machine to machine payments in in manufacturing or or logistics? I think that we are closer here, yes, because the use cases are a little bit easier and less complex because you don't have like the large companies behind it that need to integrate this into the accounting systems in their core banking systems maybe even um, and i really liked like the use case you also mentioned because i'm personally very often stumbling across an article but there is a paywall and i'm just not reading it because i don't want to you know have a new subscription which costs me five or ten euros a month um, so i'm never reading <laughs> these things um, actually so why not thinking about you know having like here these streaming payments value for value where we say per minute of reading article or per page for example you know it's just an input this could be kind of anything we just charge a fraction of this and of course on the use case front we need to see if, for example media outlets are interested in that because the business model is that people get a subscription and that they you know basically um yeah will keep a long time but um, from a from a user perspective, I think it will provide a, a substantial value add if we had these alternatives. And of course, it's also important to understand that not just DLT can provide these benefits, right? Because often people say it's just DLT and it's definitely not just DLT, but we do see that DLT can do these things and it's just moving way quicker than the conventional payment systems in this regard. And this is why I'm always saying, you know, that one should give DLT a, a chance also around these use cases. Um, because yeah, they just provide, basically it's the only form of payment that provides these subsend payments to date. It's just not possible with fiat. I think that, you know, we should give a lot of credit to, to the, the push to think differently uh, to, to DLT and blockchain, right? Whether it ends up being the, the optimal technological solution it's yet to be seen, depends on, on, on the case, but we definitely should give credit to the fact that this technology has disrupted the mindset and the business models. That there's, uh, in my mind, there's no, no uh, doubt about that. I mean, you mentioned, Jonas, uh, the Bitcoin uh, um, uh, Lightning Network. Why is it that the sentiment around it is sort of dampened, if you want. Uh, I recall uh, a lot of excitement uh, pre-COVID around the potential. Um, I personally remember going to um, a, a little uh, um, bistro in Bern at the time, which was the first one that was offering to pay with, with through the Bitcoin Lightning Network and tried it. and and so on, and this was probably 2017, and we are five years forward, and not a lot has happened. Um, I mean, on Twitter, I have linked to my Bitcoin wallet, but you know, nothing has really ever, ever happened. Uh, so so what's, what's your opinion? Um, is it, what is the, the issue? I think, I would fully agree with what you just mentioned if we were back one year ago, because I also have to say until probably one year ago, I didn't care a lot about lightning, to be honest. And then I went into the like technology, how it works, and I was really fascinated. So this was like a personal thing. But what we have seen in the last year that there has been really great progress made around the lightning network. So what I mean by that is we see like substantial growth. So we are still 
um, you know, pretty small compared to normal payment systems, of course. Um, but we have seen that it has grown multiple times basically within last year. So it's getting more and more. Um, but, you know, this is just numbers, just network size. What I was really, you know, um, like positive and was like, oh, wow, here is something going on. is like that we see more and more real use cases with, based on Lightning. So what I just mentioned with the podcast, it's working. It might be a niche, but it's working. And um, as I said, no other like fiat alternative can provide these nano payments value for value today. So I think that's, yeah. that's really impressive. Um, and secondly, we have, for example, seen that in South Africa, Pick and Page, one of the largest retailers in South Africa, um, now integrated Lightning payments so that you can go to your supermarket and pay with Bitcoin Lightning on a conventional payment terminal, which I, I think is also quite impressive. And as you tried it out already, you know how easy Lightning, I mean, I'm not sure if it was that easy a few years ago, but it's just scanning a QR code. It's one of the most convenient um, payment methods, at least for me personally, where we don't have like QR code payments spread um, a lot in Europe, which is also brings in the convenience argument. And the third, third aspect is that we do see lots of corporate activities. So in the VC space, there has been lots of money provided for Lightning. And I mean, you might remember David Marcus and his team who formerly were involved with Libra DM. They now founded Lightspark, which is a startup around Bitcoin Lightning um, with like a great team of ex-Libra um, mm -hmm. people like Christian Catalini as well, you might know. So these indicate for me, okay, something is going on here. I know we are still early and there are also, you know, still limitations around the network like technology that technologically that need to be solved. Also to date, you can only send Bitcoins with that. So Bitcoin Maxis would say it's like perfect thing. Why send something else with it? But um, there are also efforts undergoing like Taro RGB where you in the future could maybe also send other assets um, via Bitcoin Lightning. Again, more questions come up about how to exchange these, these things. You need Oracle, stuff like that. So still early, but all these news and this momentum for me at least indicates that something is going on here and that this is an innovation we should really take seriously. Are you aware whether what Square and Jack Dorsey is doing with, with blockchain is also related with the Bitcoin Lightning Network? I know that he's a very big fan of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Lightning um, there and also now with, with the block um, where, where he's, he's active, but um, I didn't see any reason. Um, recent information, but this could also be due to that I'm not perfectly yeah, due, informed. Due to the fact that it's not public information, uh, there, there's no doubt about it. Is there any um, effort that you're seeing out there, like a wallet or some type of integration? I would I would call it a wallet um, that could hold all these possible monies. You know, the CBDCs, the the what we have today, the cards. You know, the wallets that we have today, like the Apple and the Google wallet, are really very, I'd call them primitive um, and, and not smart in any way. Are you seeing any wallets? Of course, there's many crypto, uh, pure crypto wallets, but anything that's integrating uh, these aspects? Well, I would say, so I'm, I'm, I would say yes and no. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not aware on, you know, a really major large wallet that can do this today. Um, but I'm very well aware of some startups that have developed wallets that actually can do this. Um, so technologically, I think that's totally, totally doable and will also be the case in the future. 
Um, I personally have the feeling that around CBDCs, there is not sufficient focus set on the wallet yet. So we've seen that the Bank of England, for example, had like a, a kind of um, tender, basically contracting a company that develops a wallet. But I think this is kind of, for me, was one of the rare, rare, rare occasions where a central bank talked about wallets of CBDCs. So I think we are a little bit, let's say, too early um, to, to talk about this in detail. Um, but I'm sure these solutions will exist. And maybe also, you know, I mentioned the regulated liability network. If this it's still quite early, but if this works out technologically, this could also be a way where we have different liabilities, right? And then in this network, and then we would could easily uh, kind of integrate this also in a wallet. But again, also here, we are quite early. So exciting topics as you see, but still like lots of work um, undergoing or yeah, on, on kind of any of these innovations we're talking about. Jonas, uh, I want to, to thank you a lot. Um for all your um, uh, insights and, and sharing your experience. Before uh, we close, two questions. One, uh, around um, central bank monetary policy. Do you think that all these different, the evolution of money, the different forms of money, the, the private stable coins, um, the cryptocurrencies, the CBDCs and so on, are they going to change monetary policy? Or is that something that is too far away to even think about? Yeah. So it's again looking into the crystal ball. <laughs> but my personal feeling would be that this would change monetary policy on the long run, because I'm personally also um, a big believer in crypto and Bitcoin. So I think if we look back, let's not say, let's maybe not say a few years, but a few decades, that a lot of people will use crypto. Um, as a store of value more, but maybe via Lightning also as a means of payment. So this means that the, the role of the central bank in payments, I think, gets less and less, which we already see today, right? That cash is less and less um, being used. We have just recently seen the data of the ECB uh, payment uh, survey from, from 2022 here. Um, but I think where the, the most like direct impact will come for monetary policy, potential impact is actually the CBDC itself. Because what a central bank could do is put like an interest rate on the CBDC, right? So make this remunerated in contrast to cash. And this could also mean like for positive interest rates and for negative interest rates, um, that this is like kind of a new monetary policy tool. And for sure, this would impact if an interest rate is granted. So this is also important to understand that currently for the beginning, the ECB also mentioned if proceeding with a digital euro, it will not be remunerated in the beginning, but who knows for how long. Right, and this would definitely affect monetary policy substantially if there is an interest rate being positive or negative on a CBDC. I think that the, the fact that any CBDC is programmable and therefore the way it's implemented in the beginning can change, you know, in the future is one of the things that uh, a lot of people are concerned about. Whereas, you know, uh, in in the traditional world that we've lived in. It's not the case. Of course, the, there we can look at the situation where monetary policy is just decided centrally and it can change. Uh, so, so that's comparable. I fully agree. And I think that's one of the largest like, challenges around the CBDC as well, because we also talked about privacy. Who promised me that what the ECB like, implements today is also valid in five years and 10 years? Yes. So I, I do fully understand people that are um, that are skeptical about this. Um, and I mean, 
from a citizen's perspective that demand privacy, I mean, what you could think about is of course, providing your code open source so that people can, you know, from the crypto, like this crypto narrative, um, don't, tr don't trust a verify, read into the, the code if they want at least, right? Or also use like, as we do um, zero knowledge proofs um, in the concept for CBDCs to really be sure that it's privacy. You know? So not just that the central bank promises to you, oh, we, we don't touch the data, but that just crypto uh, from a cryptography perspective, you just cannot look into the data. But also here, you know, who's telling me that this will be kept for 10, 15, 20 years or that these limits will maybe go down, down, down to zero from some monetary amount. And I think this is, a, this is a definitely a challenge. And I think you can address this, but I'm not sure if there is a way to really, you know, remove these negative feelings uh, around this yeah, possibility to change design elements over time. Yeah, so so that uh, again leads to the fact that we'll end up having all of us some mix, but the mix that we choose will, will differ depending on how we feel um, uh, and, and how we run our lives and, and what is our position there. And, and the last question is, because the value of privacy, but the value of self-sovereignty has gone up, and will continue to go up. I mean, in my opinion, it has gone up recently, even more due to the sanctions from the US to, to Russia. I mean, the fact that uh, a central bank was able to freeze the dollar reserves of another central bank, independent of the reason, is you know um, really stunning. And it, it definitely shows that there is a value to uh, self-sovereignty and will that maybe lead some central banks to look into um, you know Bitcoin for example much mm -hmm. like the Swiss National Bank has um, has uh, equities yeah I think in the long run yes I don't think in the very very short run um, but in the long run, I mean, also if we now if we now do see that cryptos are like getting more and more regulated, that also people like and also including central bankers understand that crypto itself like is not a scam. You know, as we have seen with FTX, it was like a company that did horrible horrible things and um, that betrayed people, um, but it wasn't like Bitcoin's fault or or Ether's fault, right? So it wasn't the technology. It could have been trading, you know, whatever uh, mugs. <laughs> exactly. It could have been could have been everything here. And I think it, it currently needs more understanding. And also the narrative um, also in the media around Bitcoin is, is, is still not not good. Right. So if I reach the like average German newspaper, it's really still about high energy consumption, um, fraud, like scam with FTX, you know. Um, but I think over time, people will understand that that's like not the full truth. And if we look currently into the statistics for crypto holders, we do see that like the young generation, so many people hold crypto, right? So like my friends, even the people that are not knowing a lot about crypto, they still hold it, they try it out, you know, they are open. And I think this is also a question of generation. So if there is higher demand, also coming up from society, which I think will over decades, so it's a really long process, then this will also lead to, to, um, to these kind of situations. But I don't see this, uh, this immediately. But what I think is important, and you mentioned this, that privacy and self-sovereignty is, is very important, that of course, this also needs to be, as I mentioned, considered very carefully in the context of CBDCs. 
And I think secondly, this is also one of the reasons why we should have cash as long as possible because cash provides like both, right? And this is also why I'm personally, I'm still paying everything I can with cash because I love the privacy. My, lots of people laugh, laugh at me and say, haha, um, you're a little exaggerating. But um, I think it's all about, you know, payment diversity. People should use the form of money they want to use. And in the, in the end, I could could very well imagine that this includes also some kind of cryptocurrencies, still cash, CBDC, stable coins, you name it. But in the end, the customer should have the opportunity to choose what he or she likes best to pay with. It's interesting, Jonas, and, and I want to, to share with you that I've been watching the rise of cash tech in the fintech sector, meaning companies that deploy technologies to facilitate the distribution of cash which, of course, uh, you know, up to date is very centralized and scattered. You know, you have to go to an ATM or or to a bank. It's very inefficient. It's it includes fraud. It includes costs that we're not even aware of. And these technologies are are helping um, people get cash anywhere they are. Like you know, um, serve the customer if you want where you're at. So if you need cash, um, they can deliver it at the supermarket, at your, you know, the store that you frequent at uh, anywhere. So it's very interesting how these forces are, are, are there and, and serving at the same time while we, we have this complete digital future over our head um, that I think it's also creates this sentiment that we want to hold on to something physical because that way we if we disconnect completely from money uh, we, we lose the sense of you know managing it and, and planning yeah and this was also one of the reasons that has been mentioned in the ECB survey that people you know like with cash because they always know oh I have you know, 100 euro in my wallet. So this is the money I can spend. And if you shop online, we all know, you know, we maybe sometimes click on one good uh, rather more than less because, you know, we are not in this moment thinking about these kind of rest restrictions, right? And but this also shows that also the new forms of money that come up, they will all bring new challenges with it, right? So I think um, also society will need to change, but I think, and will change, but I think what's always really important, as I mentioned, is that like the use cases is in, are in front, you know, and like the citizen. So in the end, that value-added services are building on top. Um, and I think this is also, also definitely something we will see more and more over the next few years as well. Jonas, thank you so much. Tell us um, uh, what your plan professionally is for, for this year, where you're devoting all your energy yeah th thanks uh, thanks also again for having me it was really a pleasure so um yeah currently i'm um i'm um, a coo at Etonic in germany which is a company where we do like consulting and prototyping around all these you know monetary innovations we talk about today so cbdc um, crypto payments and stable coins and I'm also continuing, of course, my role as the chairman of the Digital Euro Association, where we really as like, you know, an independent think tank and independent voice around CBDCs and stablecoins wants to be seen, um, have like a community with more than um, 800 uh, individuals and companies and central banks, which I think is, is, is quite exciting for me um, to, to see and also to, you know, 
to, to impact the debate. And I think what's really important, like for me personally, is really to, to contribute basically also to a world or future of payments, which just improves things and, you know, contribute basically to a better society around, say, around payments. So this is what drives me every day. And this is also why I really like my roles um, and my jobs really, really a lot. Great. I mean, that, that is an amazing uh, purpose to have, especially since all this means that you have to take into account the different cultures, the different economies, uh, even, you know, within Europe, there's so much diversity. And, and when you're planning, designing these um, monies, <laughs> these, these ways of, of moving value, these, which is really the core of the economy, you have to take into account these. So, Bravo, it's uh, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news on Facebook facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.